been a kind of a busy week. Uh, our little homestead, we, we got a new goat. Might see that new goat sometime. Welcome to do that. It's very sweet. Uh, been uh, prepping for this year's garden and planting tomato starters, getting them going. And uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. I one of the things, uh, one of the emphases that, uh, that the girls had when they were uh, at their mission base in Arkansas, where they were supposed to have, but they were a little understaffed to do it, was uh, agricultural tech, ag tech as a part of a missions program. I thought it was kind of a, a cool idea. Uh, of course, and you understand in foreign missions, uh, that makes a lot of sense. If you might be going to a place where food scarcity is a reality, and so the ability to grow, cultivate your own uh, livestock and crops is, is pretty important. But as we have sort of begun to shift and think about rural America as our local mission field, ag tech also plays an important role there. And so it's become sort of more important to me this year as I've thought about this. Uh, not only because it has sort of a rural appeal, as a matter of fact, um, like growing organic tomatoes is, is how I uh, met a young man that uh, probably gives me more credit than I'm due in, in, in spurring him on to discipleship in Christ. Uh, but we formed a relationship over me, you know, growing tomato starters and selling them, and, and we became friends, and he's uh, actually at this point a much better organic gardener than I am. So there's that sort of appeal to a rural community of doing these things. There's a lot of us, of course, that talk shop when we get together about our gardens. Uh, and uh, many of you far more skilled than I am. Maybe I'll get there one day. It's also a way of building community. And of course, it's about food production at some level. But also, I do all of these things because they have helped me understand Scripture better. A lot of the allegories and metaphors that we're given in Scripture are very agrarian. They deal with things like crops and sheep and, and, and all these sorts of things. And so participating in that life gives me a, a deeper appreciation for some of those metaphors. Uh, Matthew, in the, in the chapter that we're going to be looking at today, transitions really into a focus on the parables of Jesus. And of course, most of those parables are very agrarian in nature. They deal with that sort of rural life. As Jesus' influence is growing through the gospel story, his message actually becomes, in a way, more covert. Initially, he's very blunt and everything's kind of out in the open. Now we've read about how he's being challenged regularly by the Pharisees and by other religious leaders. And he starts to do all of his teaching in parables. And there's a sense in which he's kind of somewhat going underground because his enemies are looking for a way to get at him. And it's not time. He, he eventually, he's going to let them get at him, but it's not time. And so he adopts this, this style of teaching in parables, and so the part of that is about being more covert, but it's also a very distinct 
teaching methodology. So the first one in Matthew 13, uh, the disciples the disciples came to him. Uh, well, let me let's look at this first. The disciples came to him and asked, "What do you speak? Why do you speak to the people in parables?" He replied, "Because the knowledge." of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In other words, the parables were meant to be mysterious. He says to his disciples, this knowledge has been given to you, which is kind of an interesting statement inasmuch as he says this to them at a point when they're coming to ask him to explain the parables. Explain to us what you just said. He says, well, this knowledge has been given to you. But kind of his point is, a lot of people won't get it because they don't have the key that opens this particular lock. This is intentional and it's purposeful and it's in part Jesus kind of speaking in code his enemies would really like him to say something that they can use to put him on trial and as long as he's teaching in parables what exactly are they going to say they're going to drag him off to court and they're going to say okay what's the complaint and they're going to say he said the fishermen are going to sort the good fish from the bad fish We just know he was talking about us. But also he says, whoever has will be given more. Which kind of echoes a previous teaching where he says, whoever seeks will find. In other words, those who are really looking for the truth are the ones who will discover it. And as long as they keep looking, they'll continue to go deeper. And he will explain, as we read through the Gospels, he will explain some of these parables. But a lot of them he doesn't explain. A lot of them uh, he leaves for us to kind of wrestle with. He seems to relish in confusing his listeners and letting them work through that confusion and figure out what the message is all about. And there's a profound value to that search. A metaphor creates a possibility for great depth. So as we read through the parables, a lot of times there's more than one way to even understand that parable, as simple as it may seem. Because metaphors have that kind of depth. We can, we can look at them in different ways and we can apply them different ways. And so this is a great teaching method because it allows for that kind of exploration with, with some limitations. Because the simple things that Jesus is talking about, none of them are going to be a perfect metaphor for the kingdom. There There are certainly some ways in which the kingdom is not like a treasure in that's buried in the field. But in the ways that it is, it's a powerful teaching tool because we could explore all that that might mean. And so sometimes we read through these parables, understanding that there is depth there yet to be mined can be important to our learning process. Matthew 13 basically gives us a compressed series 
of related parables. And we come to the first one in verse 3. It says, Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he scattered the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds, other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And of course, the major underlying message, the one that we're familiar with, is that the gospel always inspires a range of responses. This is a familiar theme already in Matthew. This is one of the things that Matthew points out to us from the very beginning. It's one of the things that Jesus predicts is going to happen. He says, this is a narrow way, and few are going to find it. Matthew has already given us stories of those who will become disciples, those who would be disciples but are apparently not prepared to make the commitment necessary, those who reject the message altogether, and even those who dissent against that message, who are conspiring against Jesus because they don't like the message. And so he talks about the reasons why. Why is it that people uh, respond to, why is it people respond differently to the gospel? And the birds, he will tell us, represent the servants of the evil one coming and snatching away the message because it hasn't been understood, it hasn't had that opportunity to grow. The rocky soil represents those who respond but don't grow roots, they don't flourish, just sort of uh, flash in the pan. The thorny soil represents a faith that's choked out by worldly concerns. And of course, the good soil represents a gospel that sprouts, roots, grows up, fruits. And chances are, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you have already heard a message about this parable with a title, something like, What kind of soil are you? And that's a reasonable message, but that's not our message this morning. Because I really want to challenge not our theology of the soil, but our theology of the seed. Whenever we are fruitless in our discipleship, whenever our churches don't produce fruit, whenever our ministries don't produce fruit, whenever people fall away, when they don't listen to the gospel, we lose them to the world. We say, at least we planted a seed. Now there's some truth to this, and that's why we've all said it. There's some truth. Jesus, Jesus instructs his disciples. If they reject you, if they reject your me- this message, they're rejecting me. And you need to knock the dust off of your shoes and, and go on. But there's also a sense in which we have given ourselves this message as an out for our frustration with the fruitlessness of what we're doing sometimes. We read this story of the sower And we imagine the sower 
is kind of haphazard. He's sowing seeds as he goes along. And whatever happens, happens. This is definitely a technique for sowing seed. There's a name for this technique in farming and gardening. We call it stupid. Because nobody who wants to have a good yield plants this way. I plant this way when I have a packet of seed that I got for free and I don't care whether or not it does anything. Sometimes I'll just throw it into a space and say, well, let's see what, let's see what happens. When we have this particular theology, I think that we imagine the sower in isolation. Like this is a guy who just hangs out at his house 11 and a half months of the year and we bring him out only when it's time for sowing and that's all that he does. Like the sower is a job unto itself even though it only happens maybe once or twice a year. The reality is the sower is a farmer who has responsibility year-round for what happens. Now, part of the reason that I think that we do this is because of the distance that we have from this sort of agrarian understanding, this agrarian lifestyle. See, I like gardening, and I continue to do gardening, I continue to plant a garden, regardless of how much success or failure I enjoy as a gardener. But the reality of my life is if my tomato plants fail this year, I will go down to the supermarket and I will buy tomatoes. Understand that the audience for Jesus' message have a very different understanding of the sower. If the sower plants this seed and it doesn't yield a harvest, well, there's a technical name for that. It's called famine. There's not a backup plan. There's no supermarket where you're going to go get the crop that didn't grow. In, in, a, in a genuine agrarian culture, the ability to grow your crops and raise your livestock for food is, is, is life-giving. That's what it's about. If it doesn't work out, you don't say, well, we planted seed. And somehow that makes it okay. Understand this about this, this seed of the kingdom, this seed of gospel. The seed's purpose is to sprout. One of the reasons that I do this is not because I'm a great gardener. One of the reasons I do this every year is because I am in awe of seeds. A seed is like a tiny miracle. This is, I, you know, I used confetti this morning because if I'd used the seeds that actually came in this packet, it would have looked like I was throwing nothing. You would not see them. They're that tiny. My fat fingers have a hard time planting them in the right place. 
They're that tiny, and yet they contain everything that they need. They contain all the information that they need to grow into the plant that God designed them to be. They contain the impetus for that. And they continue to contain that. I planted these seeds yesterday. Uh, I have every confidence that they will sprout in spite of the fact that this packet has been in my seed box for three years now. That's the miracle that God has, has, has given us in seed. It even contains the beginning nutrients that it needs for that seedling to get its start. That's remarkable to me. I like participating in that particular miracle every year, even if I'm not that good. The seed's purpose is to sprout, and given the right circumstances, it will sprout, it will grow, it will root, and it will fruit. And seeds are so resilient that they'll sometimes come up where we absolutely do not expect them. A couple of years ago, at uh, Halloween time, we had some pumpkins out in the front porch. A couple of them spoiled there on the front porch. Apparently, some of those seeds got out before we collected all of it up because the next spring, guess what happened? I had pumpkin plants growing in my flower boxes. They did better, honestly, than pumpkin plants in my garden do. That's how resilient some of those seeds are. But usually, most of the time, the seeds thrive where the soil has been properly prepared. And that's what I really want to focus on with you this morning is that the sowing depends on the cultivation. This sort of broadcast spreading that we read about in this parable that's common for grass crops like like wheat. We all understand that when you do that, even with modern equipment, when you do that, there's a certain amount of seed loss. There's seed that goes into places where it's not intended. There's seed that we we know is probably not going to survive. But the objective remains that there be a meeting between good seed and good soil. That's the objective. When we moved to Missouri from Colorado, one of the things that I was very excited about, when people kept saying, why did you move from Colorado? One of the things I did not like about Colorado, and that I I do like here, is that in Colorado, our gardening season was approximately four months. Those those were the four months in which you were relatively certain you weren't going to get any snow. So it was a very short season, and gardening there was very complicated, very difficult, and so I was really looking forward to coming out here and having this longer growing season, like my relatives in Kansas do. And what I learned that very first year, gardening in Missouri, is that I have terrible soil. Longer growing season doesn't help you if you have terrible soil. Interesting thing is, I have all of the conditions that we read about in this parable. I had hard pack, I had rocks, I had thorns, I also had heavy clay, And I had a soil that when I tested it, had essentially no nutrients at all. 
And so, what do I do? Every year, my little garden plot, I rake the leaves in, the grass clippings, I put compost down, collect that goat, and used to be rabbit manure, and I spread that around, and I till all of that into the soil. And every year as I till, the soil magically produces more rocks. You, you would think, you would think eventually you would have hit all of them, but no, they migrate up from underneath, and there they are again. So every year I pick rocks out of my soil and I put them in a pile. This is a process of delayed gratification. Cultivating the soil is not nearly as gratifying as bringing in the harvest. But cultivating the soil is required if you really want the harvest to be anything worth bragging on. Our conception, I think, sometimes of the sower takes good soil for granted. We just assume that the good soil exists, that nobody did anything to prepare it. And yet one of the messages of these parables, as we read through Matthew 13, is that the enemy is actively obstructing the harvest. See, the seed of the gospel is meant to sprout, and it will grow in properly prepared soil. But the forces of evil will seek to obstruct that growth and will disrupt all of our attempts at cultivation. Our culture right now, the culture of this community, the culture immediately around us, is not particularly receptive to the gospel. But that is not a reflection on the seed. The seed of the gospel is still good seed. It is a reflection on the obstructions that the enemy has sown into our field. So Matthew 13, Jesus tells them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed into his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemies came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. In other words, false disciples and their false philosophies create confusion. Probably the crop that we're talking about here, the weed seeds that we're talking about, is darnel. Darnel is a species of ryegrass. It looks very much like wheat right up until the heads mature. And it even has uh, grains. It even has kernels like wheat. And, and they sometimes uh, would get harvested collected with the wheat, and that's kind of a problem because they are toxic to humans. And so this is why in, in the remainder of that story, the servants ask the master, said, didn't, didn't we, we saw you sow good seed, right? You sowed good seed. And he says, yes, an enemy has done this. But here's what we're going to do. At the harvest time, we're going to separate out the weeds from the wheat, and we're going to burn the weeds off. The enemy sows into the world that which looks like nourishment, but really isn't. Understand that uh, 
Darnell is, has an interesting uh, story, an interesting story life that, that the listeners of Jesus would have understood. Darnell is a crop that has been accidentally domesticated. In other words, it doesn't occur naturally anymore. It only occurs where humans plant it, and humans only plant it by accident, by allowing those weed seeds to get mixed in with the good, with the good grain. And so here is this deception, here is this lie, here is this toxicity, which is actually cultivated by humanity. It continues to exist because we continue to plant it. You can see this in the world around us. There are so many things, so many plants, so much life, so many seeds that bear a passing resemblance to the truth, but they are poisonous. And it is a poison that has been perpetuated by humanity. In fact, in in verses 31 and 32, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Now, understand that a normal mustard plant is a shrub. It grows to about five foot tall, uh, usually at at the highest. It is not a tree. So Jesus here is describing a situation where the kingdom is going to experience supernatural growth. Now, we think of the birds as a reference to that growth and imagery, that imagery of the birds taking shelter, but I think we have to at least consider the possibility, given, given the, 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 the progress through these parables that, that Matthew gives us in chapter 13, and also the fact that the birds in the first parable are the agents of the enemy. I think we have to consider the possibility that really what he's saying is that the supernatural growth of the church attracts opportunists. Whether or not that's what Jesus intended by this parable, we know that's something that Jesus taught. Is that when the church begins to take off, false teachers and false gospels will make their way into that setting. will find shelter in that setting and will try to use it and manipulate it. In the context of the field, your farm and garden, birds are a mixed blessing at best. I sometimes allow the chickens to go into my garden after the plants have been established because they actually help pick some weeds and they eat bugs, which is great. But if you leave them there too long, you know what they start doing? They start eating your crop. Birds are a mixed blessing at best. The major task of cultivating the soil around us is recognizing and testing the deceptive philosophies that grow up because there are false teachers and there are wolves in sheep's clothing. This is something that Christ warned us about from the very beginning. And then he goes on in verse 33, he told him still another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into to 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And again, we, for the most part, have tended to read this parable 
as an explanation of how the gospel works its way into the whole. But it's extremely unlikely that Jesus' audience would have heard this parable this way. Because yeast, for his audience, is nearly always a symbol of corruption or sin. And that becomes particularly significant when we understand that Jesus gave a very specific measure here. Here in my version it says 60 pounds. Some of your versions may say something slightly different. There's some debate in scholarly circles about what these measures meant and how they translate. But it appears that the measure we're talking about is the same measure we read about in the Old Testament being given as a grain offering. So if that's so, if Jesus is saying this particular measure that you know to be a grain offering measure, that grain offering, of course, had to be free from any yeast. And in the original Greek, it doesn't just say that she mixed it into the loaf. It uses a word that actually means she hid it in the loaf. She blended it in so it couldn't be seen. It's pretty clear the way that the, the people who first heard Jesus use this parable would have heard it. They, they would have been scandalized by the very idea. And so I think we have to consider the possibility that this is not talking about how the gospel spreads. In fact, it doesn't even really match what else Jesus says about how the gospel spreads. Jesus never says the gospel is going to spread through the hole and reach everyone. He says quite the opposite of that. He says few are going to find the truth and obey it. So perhaps what he's saying is that the corruption of sin can, in fact, permeate the church. You see, the enemy is always working against God. And the success of the kingdom provokes the enemy to react. The seed of kingdom is designed to sprout, grow, root, and fruit. But the enemy is going to do everything he can to make sure that it's snatched up, blocked, choked, that it meets with the weeds of deception, and that the field itself becomes corrupted. I think sometimes we as the church have taken fertile soil for granted. But fertile soil for the gospel in our world is becoming rare. We sow the seed, but at times we have ignored the birds, ignored the rocks, ignored the thorns, ignored the weeds. Right now, our fellowship is enjoying growth. We, we are having new people come and join us and, and praise God. They answer our prayers. They are workers. They are workers prepared for the harvest. But if God is doing that, then we need to understand that the harvest is often dependent upon some things. The harvest is dependent, first of all, on the prevenient grace of God. It's just a $10 word that means it comes before. And we're, under, we're comfortable with the idea of grace that comes after, right? We come to Jesus and Jesus meets us with grace. But understand that God's grace is at work in the world before people come to Christ. He is at work preparing the soil. He is at work, His Holy Spirit is at work convicting people of sin, 
drawing people to Jesus. That work is taking place all the time. And if we understand that the harvest is dependent upon that prevenient grace of God, then we will watch for it and we will pray for it. We will pray that God is conducting that ministry, preparing the fields around us for his harvest. It will also be dependent on the removal of obstacles. This is about picking the stones out of the field. The enemy places obstruction, and we can't always do anything about it. But where we can, we will remove it. Now I want to caution you that some churches in, uh, in the West today have become so interested in removing obstacles to the gospel that they begin removing the gospel itself. They commit to grace in a way that undermines the truth. And some churches have so committed themselves to truth that they forget to apply grace. The world around us, therefore, has some broken expectations of the church. They expect the church either to bend to their will to accommodate their sin, their life, what have you. Or they expect that the church will be judgmental and hypocritical. Removing obstruction in our modern age means that we have to change these expectations by being people of extreme biblical integrity matching that integrity with a love that is completely unwarranted. Loving people where they are regardless of whether or not we think they deserve it because that's what God does. But also, on a personal level, holding to truth regardless of what the world has to say about it. The harvest also depends on the cultivation of the soil. Folks, we live in an age where there is so much information all the time and so very little truth. So much information and so little truth. We can enrich the world around us by speaking the truth. We can enrich the soil simply by speaking the truth. And not just in here where it's relatively safe to do so, but out there where it may not be so safe to do so. And not just the gospel, but the whole context of the gospel. Because without context, the gospel will not be understood. And without understanding, the agents of the enemy come and snatch the gospel away before it can take root. And so we need to speak truth into the world so that people can understand that they are created in the image of God. They are created with purpose. They are created by a God who loves them. And that deception no matter how invested you are in it, is not your truth. And your brokenness, no matter how much you embrace it, is not your identity. The harvest may very well be dependent on a healthy greenhouse. And I know that greenhouse is not part of these parables. But then, of course, the church doesn't exist when these parables are given. And I think... In my experience, anyway, a greenhouse is a great metaphor for the church. 
You don't need a greenhouse necessarily to grow a, a kingdom crop. And you don't necessarily need a church in order to begin harvesting for the kingdom. But the potential of the church is to be an ideal environment for starters. I grew up in the Salinas Valley, California. In the Salinas Valley, they grow lettuce. They grow a lot of other salad crops too, but they mostly grow lettuce. And chances are, if you bought a head of lettuce this week, there's, a, there's, there's about a 50% chance that you bought it from a company called Bud Antle. Bud Antle grows lettuce around the world, but primarily in the Salinas Valley. Bud Antle pioneered a technology of starting their lettuce crops in greenhouses in these plastic trays which have tiny little receptacles in them. They fill them up with this mix of soil and kind of an adhesive. You plant a seed in it mechanically, and they start it in greenhouses. And then all those little seed pods pop out of the trays. They feed them into a machine. They look like little, little bullets with a tiny, <laughs> tiny head of lettuce growing out of the back of the bullet. And the machine takes them out to the field and plants them all in the field. Bud Antle pioneered this technology. He can grow a head of lettuce in almost half the time that it used to take. That's the advantage of the greenhouse. That's the advantage of the church. The church has this opportunity to be this place that is so like the atmosphere of the kingdom that it is a great place for people to get their start in the kingdom, a great place for them to get healthy, to grow and to be ready to enter into the field, to be ready to, to, to enter the mission. And what starts in the greenhouse directly impacts the harvest. If the greenhouse is unhealthy, then it will send out plants that are weak and malnourished and ill-prepared for the world. And if it's a healthy greenhouse, it'll send out strong plants that are healthy and nourished and well-prepared. A harvest may be dependent on an environment that is inhospitable to weeds. Weeds are a reality of gardening. Right, gardeners? Actually, it's one of the things that keeps most people who don't garden out of gardening. Dealing with weeds is just too much of a pain. Weeds are a reality. Uh, you, can, you can pick them, you can pull them, but a lot of time you won't, you won't get the whole root out, and then the weed will come right back. And sometimes, like in the parables we've read today, it's just simply impractical to try to remove the weeds. I get busy during the summer. This is my problem. Uh, I have this time in the spring, and then I get busy in the summer, and I lose control, and the weeds sort of take over. And then I look out on the garden and go, oh, do I really want to spend that time getting that back under control? Can I just tell you something? At that moment, my garden looks fantastic. It is green and lush and beautiful. It's easy for, easy for me to look at that and go, well, maybe I'll just leave all that there. Maybe I'll just leave that there. But here's the reality. Those weeds are not going to produce a crop. 
not a crop that I can use. And they're going to deplete everything that I planted there and keep it from being as productive. That's the nature of weeds. Now, we can't completely control weeds, and if the parable teaches us anything, this is in, in the world and, and in the church, sometimes the weeds are going to be there, and you're not going to be able to do anything about it. We're going to reach the judgment day, and Jesus will deal with it himself. So sometimes you can recognize the weeds. Sometimes you can deal with them. You can plant, or you can lay down mulch in the places where you know no good seed has been planted and where nothing's supposed to come up. But the most important thing that you do in order to control weeds in your garden is make sure that the plant that you put there is the healthiest plant. That it is stronger and healthier than anything that comes up around it. Nurture the good plants and it will mount its own defense against the weeds. Pears look like wheat, but they are toxic. And they undermine the fruitfulness of the fellowship. The best defense against them is healthy disciples. Something I want you to notice. Jesus is explaining this parable of the sower. In verse 23, he says, But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. I want to point out to you a very subtle but very important shift. When Jesus begins explaining this parable, at first he said, the seed is the message. The seed is the message that goes out, the message about the kingdom, the message of the gospel. The seed is the message. By the time he's finishing his explanation of the gospel, he sort of mixes his metaphors a little bit, and there's a subtle shift from the seed is the message to the seed is the one. The one who's heard and received the message. The seed is the one. In other words, the harvest is going to be dependent on disciples who become the seed. If you are in Christ, you're no longer the soil. You're no longer simply the recipient of the message. You have, in fact, become the seed. Your life is the seed. Your home is the seed. Your church is the seed. These things have become the message of the gospel. So it's no mistake then that Matthew includes in this list of parables the parable of the pearl of great price. You remember that one? Merchant who goes out and finds his pearl and decides it's so valuable that he sells off everything else that he has in order to obtain this one pearl. And again, there is this, there is this underlying message there that if you want to find Jesus, if you want to find truth, if you want to find the gospel... You really need to be the one who's looking for it. And if you seek it, you'll find it. But when you find it, when you find it, will you be prepared to give 
everything that you have in order to obtain it. Because if so, your life itself becomes a testimony to the kingdom. And this is the question that we have to ask ourselves. What is the testimony of my life? Is, is it the testimony of the kingdom? Is it the testimony of the good news? Is it the gospel? Or, or are we tares? Looking like the harvest, but really, when it comes harvest time, producing something else, something that's not usable. Are you prepared to be a seed of the kingdom? The gospel really gives us two choices. There's not a lot of in-between space here. We, we are either the seed or we're the weeds. That's it. Are you prepared to be a seed of the kingdom? I hope you are. Because the things that we're preparing for right now are things designed to give you the equipment, give you the tools, give you the insight to plant kingdom wherever you go. Are you prepared to be a seed to the kingdom? But before you answer, understand this. Jesus himself says that unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot produce the harvest. Will you give your life Will you be the willing sacrifice? Will you be the living sacrifice in order to be a part of the harvest of the kingdom?